There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello, Boomers. It's your Voom podcast host, Nikki Beatty here. We're back with a sneaky bonus episode for you before we start Series 2. Now, usually on this show, I invite two entrepreneurs into the studio and they chat about their approach to business, sharing startup stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, the tips, advice, all that kind of nice stuff. You should know this already, but if you're new to the show, Go back and check out the first 10 episodes. We've had everyone from advertising impresario Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy. If you want to build a brand, don't do or produce anything that's shit. Baby food mogul Paul Lindley of Ella's Kitchen. I kind of stopped and thought silence might work. He didn't look up. And uh, after about 20 minutes, we just left. And it was just bizarre. Iced coffee magnet Jimmy Cregan. And one of them was a hideous mermaid outfit which I've since burnt which I feel great about. Emma Sinclair, the youngest ever person to float a company on the London Stock Exchange. Well I think the the lesson in all one's failures is to fail fast. Tyra Banks and the lady who invented Spanx in conversation with Richard Branson. So Sarah, your life has been spent trying to make people's butts look better. (laughs) And even the founder of Shazam. You could describe the business as being near death for a six-year period. Not forgetting lots of Voom competition entrants and winners. I've learnt so much. Well, this week, as we're building up the tension for Series 2, which starts with a brilliant, brilliant conversation with Jacqueline Gold, the lady who brought sex toys to the high street with Anne Summers, which I'll play you a tiny sneak preview from at the end of this show. But for this episode, we found some time to do something a little bit different. The good people at Virgin Media Business let us out from the podcast cave to do a live episode at the Virgin Disruption. Event, a sort of mass gathering of influential business folk for a day of talks, workshops, and networking. The focus, of course, was on business disruption, creating a change for good in areas of purpose, performance, people, and the planet. Now, you should know that Virgin Disruptors will also be launching its own series of podcasts featuring those talks in a couple of weeks' time. But you could consider this is somewhat of a prelude, as on that day we set up our own pop-up Voom studio amongst the hustle and bustle and spoke to two amazing guests in front of a live audience. I'll let them formally introduce themselves in just a moment, but I was joined by Andy Walsh, Head of Performance at Red Bull, who who's an expert in getting the best out of people, and Dom Price, a technology innovator and self-proclaimed work futurist at software giant Atlassian. Two great business minds who were also great fun. And, as you'll hear, we started 
with an impromptu sing-song to attract a bit of an audience. We're trying hard not to show it, baby. So let's get into this. The Voom Podcast, live at Virgin Disruptors. You've lost that loving feeling. Oh, that loving feeling. You've lost that loving feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Oh, Thank you so much. So my name is Nikki Beatty and I host these podcasts. Sitting on the end here with the very long legs is a gentleman known as Don Price. Don, would you like to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about Atlassian? Yes. Uh, so I work for a software company in Australia uh, called Atlassian. I've been around for about 14 years. Um, lots of people don't know about us, but know about our products, Jira, Confluence. We service companies like NASA and the big end of town and a whole lot of small startups. Uh, and the idea is we want to provide software to a whole lot of companies to enable them to do the best work of their lives. So we give, uh, we give the power to the people. Uh, me, I'm, I'm English. I actually live in Australia now. Lived there for 13 years. Great place to live. How come you Recommend don't have a trace everyone. of an Antipodean accent then? Well, see, so when I go back to Manchester, my friends think I sound Australian. <laughs> and in Australia, no one can understand what I'm saying. And so actually, no one understands me. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> and then we have somebody truly Antipodean. Dr. Andy Walsh is here. Uh, head of performance at Red Bull with some extraordinary stories to tell us during the course of the podcast. But perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself formally too, Andy. Yeah, g'day. My name's Andy. So uh, my role at Red Bull is to support the talent that we uh, have in the organisation with respect to the athlete portfolio, the musicians and artists. So in simple words, these extraordinary people come to our shop and have a dream or a vision of pushing the edge of whatever craft they're in. And we try and set up processes and systems to support them doing that. So it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun. So first of all, I think Dom, can I ask you what being a disruptor means to you? Mm. Uh, being a disruptor, it's funny listening to a few talks today, disruption for me is in everyone. I think a lot of us harbour it or shelve it or hide it away because we, we have this fear of failure. And so for me, disruption is around saying, how can I be curious? What, what can I experiment with? What can I try? If that experiment works, how can I do more of it? And if it doesn't, what can I learn from it? And that for me is true disruption. Andy, do you have a definition of what a disruptor is? Yeah, for me, I think it speaks to the notion of courage. I think having the courage to put yourself out there, to put your idea out there, and then backing yourself in that space, really for us is the essence of disruption. And I think that's how we approach it in our field. We try and prepare and train for that so that people are better prepared to you know, face those challenges, those ine inevitable failures that have come when being a disruptor. And if we do it in the way we've learnt, then potentially they have a better chance of thriving under those situations. Did we used to have another word for disruptors? Um, yeah, maybe change makers. I think, you know, in the early days, I think they were the explorers. Mm. You know, people who saw beyond the horizon who, and again had the courage to back themselves out there. So that's how I see it. You mentioned then um, that what comes with wanting to be a disruptor and being brave, and you use the word courage, is failures. Can you talk a little bit? We love this on the Voom podcast when people tell us the stories of what didn't quite happen, what caught them out, and how they got over it. Can you think of anything off the top of your head that really caught you short and made you think, oh, this one's not going to work. How do we move on? Uh, for me personally? Uh, well, yeah, up to you. 
<laughs> um, I think, yeah, for me personally, I, I look back, I started when I graduated high school, I was uh, offered a scholarship to the Royal Military College at Duntroon, which is the equivalent of your Sandhurst. And that lasted about nine months. And uh, for some reason, that sort of life and me didn't quite gel and subsequently ended up being a lifeguard on the far north coast of northern New South Wales. And that suited me much better. But at the time, I didn't realise that failure, that disappointment, letting my friends and family down, what it really meant. And it's only after studying the types of people we get to engage with on a daily basis for about the last 30 years that I've realised how important that notion of failure is. It's a mechanism that shows you where you need to either adopt a new approach or it shows you how you're progressing in a state that potentially you weren't prepared for. But ultimately, if you're going to do something at the edge of the map, you're going to do something extraordinary. You just in, by inevitability, you're going to face a failure. And so can you prepare yourself and train for it? And a lot of our work is around that space. So when you say a lot of your work is around it, do you have a set of bullet points that you lay out for people in order for them to make the best of a failure? Yeah, I think for us, it's about understanding that that's just part of the process. Like uh, the language I use and I'll share with you today is sort of changing the threat the mindset of a threat to an opportunity or a challenge. I think just getting people to reset at the very simplest level that concept within themselves. And then a failure is not a mistake. Then a failure is just a point in the learning. And the bullet points we use is then to actually push them to the point of failure over and over and over again. And usually in a field that they're not comfortable in, so something a little bit different to what they expect. And then we train them through that exposure and we give them tools and practices to help thrive. So... We might go into those tools and practices in a moment. Dom, any notable failures for you that you could share to inspire us <laughs> oh, or inspire. amuse us? <laughs> that, that limits the number. Um, so I think the best one for me uh, came in my time at Atlassian. I, I actually have the ownership of our quant- uh, quarterly hackathon event. So it's called Ship It. Uh, we down tools. Every member of staff around the globe gets to, to do whatever they want for 24 hours. And we get some really great innovative ideas out of it. And I decided that I should, you know, I should be meta. I should be the change I seek uh, and try and you know, notch it up a little bit. So I decided to make it global. Uh, that was a massive mistake. So first of all, the people in Poland were in at 5 a.m. The people in San Francisco didn't go home till 1 a.m. The only people that the time zone worked for was Sydney. So that didn't work. And then the technology completely failed. So the whole idea of the event was vibe and mojo and innovation. And all it turned into was an IT cluster. And it was horrible. It was absolute disaster. But it was great because I tried it. And I realized that global was a great thing. But the way I'd done it was wrong. So I learned from that and I tried it again next time. And did you, did you at that time feel red-faced, shame-faced, embarrassed? I mean, mm. what are the ways that you get over those very human reactions? You hid. I hid for a while. No, uh, actually, I, I wrote a blog. I decided that it was such a great experience for me to have gone through. Like, whilst I hated every moment of it, it was a great experience. So I did an internal blog to the rest of the staff uh, around what it was like. And all I got were stories from other people saying how they'd screwed up previously and what they'd learned from it so as a, as a vehicle for saying failure is okay like you can put a poster up and say fail fast and no one will do it or you can actually celebrate failure and share the message from it and people realize it's actually okay um would you like to tell us about felix baumgartner and coming through space because that was that was your project, wasn't it? Well, I was the head of performance for it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the head of performance for somebody jumping from space to Earth. How do you prepare for that? <laughs> do you want to just quickly sum it up for us in case so, somebody uh, doesn't know? You know, 1960, Colonel Joe Kintinger 
took a balloon up to the edge of space about 110,000 feet and set the freefall world record. He was literally the first astronaut. Uh, and so, you know, 60 years later, Felix decided to take that challenge on and we set about breaking the record, uh, looking at high altitude egress as a means of safety for the, the future of space travel. And it, it was a project that sort of started with Felix, it was his idea, and sort of took us on a journey over about seven years. And the original plan was about three. So that'll give you a sense of <laughs> how failure tied into that conversation. <laughs> um, but what we learned from it, I think it was interesting. It, it was a classic moonshot. It was one of those projects that was really on the edge of what's possible. It had never been done before. And the lessons we took from that were the, the sort of the, the things you hear and read about. It was putting yourself out there, having a vision or a dream to you know, push the limits, do something extraordinary. And as um, Dom said, no one actually prepares you for how those horrible mm. moments when things go wrong and those days where everybody is just looking at this inevitable beating from the, from the, the leadership and saying, all right, how do we get through this? And what we learned from that experience was that training for that time, so preparing people to be miserable in some instances, <laughs> being aware of what it takes to be really you know, sick to the stomach and terrified to get up the next day and pass that bad news along to the boss. And we literally developed training protocols out of that that we share with all our talent now, even our most... Well, could you share some of those protocols with us? You know, I think the first one starts with pushing people in a way that allows them to go beyond the comfort zone. Uh, You could say uh, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And you literally have to experience. You can put the poster on the wall, like Dom says, fail fast or fail quickly. But what we have to do is actually put people in a space where they feel that. And so we typically pick a craft that's outside of their typical business sort of venture. So we don't want any of their ego tied to it. So a classic one would be we would take someone from the business world and put them on stage and have them do stand-up comedy. Right. And it's very tough to get in front of a room of people and try and make them laugh. So all those horrible insecurities and the feelings of nervousness and anxiety, everything comes rushing to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And then we teach you how to back yourself out of that. At the same time, we have a lot of fun. So how do you back yourself out of that gut-wrenching fear? Well, first is practice. You just keep doing it. At first it feels horrible and then you adapt. The body adapts. But also those classic techniques we draw from the Eastern philosophies, the breathing, the mindfulness, the presence, reframing it as a challenge, not a threat. Mm -hmm. Like standing there and going, what's my chance here? What's my opportunity versus, oh, hell, if I'm going to screw up and people are going to think I'm a fool. So... And you just can't do it in a a PowerPoint. You've got to get in the space, you've got to put people in the environment and you've got to tweak it up enough that they get to that edge but you don't push them so hard that they're uh, sort of crushed emotionally. So (laughs) have you been able to look at other businesses and see how they've worked with people like this or did you formulate this as an original thinker? I think we came up with the idea from looking just at the, the portfolio of talent. So across elite athletes, elite business, elite military. Um, You see these trends and these training tools employed very frequently. So we just sort of added a little creativity in them and try to pick things out that were not just physically demanding, emotionally demanding, even spiritually demanding. And if you layer them all together in 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 the right way and and you care about the people you're working with, so you do craft it in such a way that it just nudges them to that point but doesn't crush them. Uh, you're able to create these training evolutions that people, one, have a hell of a lot of fun doing, Uh two, learn a lot about themselves, and three, 
when they get in a tough situation in their own world, they can draw on those skills and uh, apply them. How long does it take to be able to apply those skills? You know, it depends how tough you want the training to be. So, <laughs> <laughs> Can I opt for levels? Yeah. We, we, <laughs> Beginner. We've seen the brain change. This is an interesting thing. We've done research in our toughest training environment, which lasts about 10 days, where we physically push you because it's an athletic group. We emotionally challenge you, spiritually challenge you. We take an fRMI of the brain pre and post, and we see changes in 10 days of the brain in the ability to handle stress and fear and anger. So the adaptation's quick if you set up the training the right way. Wow. Yeah. So, Tom, beginner, intermediate, advanced, what would you be if you were to take on one of these courses? It depends how you look at it. I like to think of it a little bit more binary, which is, you know, me, me and Annie were told before, when I, when I look at change or disruption or performance, I always think, what's the worst thing that could happen? I, if I'm not in a life or death situation, I should just do it. Like, I should just try the thing I'm trying to do. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at performance and, and coaching and mentoring in a smaller organization, a smaller team, not, not the scale that Andy's talking about, is what can you all do as leaders? And as leaders, you can have the conversation. You can say to someone, what's the worst thing that could happen if we try this? And so we run a, an improvisation course. We actually got some uh, external actors. One of our guys internally, he does a lot of improvisation in his spare time. Uh, and we ran the course in the US and then it went global. And it's one of our best attended courses because it enabled people in a safe environment to practice something they're really not comfortable with and just build some of that muscle. It's not that hard when you realize that nothing bad will come of it. So if we come back to people, when I did A-level business studies, the first thing our teacher said was, what's the first thing you need to start a business? And everybody went capital, they all had their... And obviously, it's people. But you two seem to have ways of nurturing and nourishing the best out of the people who work for you. Was that intentional and always drilled into you or something you've learned along the way? Dom, you first. Um, a little bit of both. So I, th- I think it's always been a belief at the back of my mind, you know, uh, you know A-level business studies. Um, <laughs> it didn't help People, me. people, people. Um, what, what I thought sort of in my early years when I was probably less mature was that you could just hire smart people and they, they just did the right thing. And I think 99 times out of 100, they will. What, what Andy's talking about, what I'm talking about is how can you unleash that extra potential? And, and the problem is that last mile is really hard, really hard, because you've already got someone that's intrinsically motivated, they're smart, they've gone through all this education, they're in the top X percent of their class all the way through. And what you're trying to do is unleash this extra potential. And to do that, you have to give them something that they've not done before, mm. when actually they've done an awful lot. So you're trying to embrace that diversity is one for me, where I, I have this philosophy, great minds don't think alike. People go, no, no, Dom, the phrase is great minds think alike. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> That was the phrase, but actually when I surround myself with people with divergent thoughts and I'm uncomfortable, that's when I do my best work, when someone can prove me wrong. Can you give us an example of when that's happened to you? Uh, Last week, I was doing a workshop with my team last week, and I went in there with a very specific view of the outcome we were going to leave the room with, and I had to admit that I was wrong. But it was because we have this this notion of a level playing field, of of playing as a team, of, of being an open company, Everyone has the right to, to object and to challenge and discuss. And so I was quite happy to leave that room saying, yeah, actually, I was, I was wrong. Mm. And it wasn't a proof. It wasn't a business case. I went in there with an instinct, and, and my instinct was from my environment, my world, and not from theirs. Andy, in terms of your investment in people, that's primary to everything you do? Yeah, well, originally I was trained as a coach after I failed at military school. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so secondarily... 
But uh, I think that's the essence of what we do, as Don points out. It's, we have a saying, it's better at who you are than better at what you do. So we focus, especially at the highest levels of mastery, on really exploring every aspect of a person's being and, and trying to find ways to explore the dimensions that they feel are important, but also important as part of a member of, of society. So we really push to you know, sort of reflect on everything they're doing, trying to achieve... And in that moment where we see some gaps or see opportunities, we, we explore them with them. And it's always a partnership. It's not, hey, do what I say. It's like, you are already damn good at what you do. What have you learned? Oh, okay, share that back with us. And this is what we've seen, and it's this collaboration, if you like. And in terms of working remotely with people, because now we have the opportunity to make our businesses smaller and yet bigger because we can use the web. How does that work for you, Dom? You're nodding like you know what I'm talking about, yeah, which so I, I thank you for. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I work in a highly distributed workforce. Um, we, we try not think about it as remote but more as distributed because remote gives a tangent of some kind of you know, secondary citizen, right? And, and so in highly distributed teams, our notion of doing that is we want to hire the best people where they are and, and they're not often where our offices are. So we use things like technology to, to connect them. But that connection is, is a technological connection, not, not that kind of physical or mental connection you get when you meet face-to-face. So there's a few ways we do that, but essentially the thing we impress on people is seek first to understand. And people think about that and go, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you've got your world, your environment, your upbringing, your culture, your values. That person has the same things, but they're probably different. If you seek first to understand their view and they do the same and reciprocate, you can build a bond, this common purpose or relationship where you trust each other. If you don't do that, you're just transacting. And transactions tend not to have value. So how do you ensure that that's happening across your global reach? We, we hire for values. So we, we hire around you know, open company, no bullshit. We hire around be the change you seek and play as a team. And you, you can tell if someone has that aptitude or not. If they do, they will succeed in our environment. Mm. Um, if they don't, it's likely they will struggle. And it's not around creating a singular culture. I think that's a mistake a lot of organizations make. Everyone must be the same. It's not. It's do you have the same value system as us? You're listening to the Voom podcast brought to you by Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast business broadband provider, this week with a special show recorded live at the recent Virgin Disruptors event. Listening back, I just love the focus that Dom and Andy put on people, whether it was about developing something in themselves, yourself, your workforce. There's so much to be learned from what they had to say and their approaches to performance. And coming up, we've got more from them, including a little Q&A session with our audience. But first, a few words from Virgin's head of disruption himself. Well, hello, this is Richard Branson, and I am delighted to say I'm here at Virgin Disruptors. What does disruption mean to me? Um, I think disruption is one of the most exciting things that can happen uh, in business and actually often in life. You know, if you're trying to think about starting a business, there's no point in starting it, really, unless you're going to disrupt a bigger business or come up with a unique idea that dis- disrupts the marketplace. So the word disruption, to me, is one of great excitement. A, a disruptive leader, you know, is trying to overturn the status quo and um, shaking up the bigger companies, shaking up companies that got fat and bloated and industries that got fat and bloated. And having a lot of fun in the process and 
we're fortunate at Virgin, we've had many, many occasions we've been able to do that. Sir Richard Branson backstage at Virgin Disruptors. Watch out for more from him and the other speakers at the event in a brand new podcast series launching very soon. Now, though, let's get back to our live Voom show recorded at that same event with Don Price, head of R&D and work futurist at Atlassian, and Andy Walsh, head of performance at Red Bull. Andy, do you see yourself as a businessman? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, in some ways we have to innovate quickly. We have to be pretty entrepreneurial, like... Again, supporting people that are trying to do the extraordinary, you, you kind of have to try and keep up. So I think in many ways we aspire to those sort of characteristics. Um, but essentially, as I said, most of what we do is in partnership with this extraordinary talent. And so a lot of it is just listening and learning, paying attention to really what's worked for them and, and working with that individual and trying to help them. And if it's a team, the same concept. What's, what's thriving, what's driving that team and push them forward. And what would you say makes you a disruptor, makes your company a disruptor? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough one. You know, I think I'm in the business that is going to face staggering disruption. So just being part of the community, I think as you look at the technology that's coming forward in the next few years and the scale of our ability to understand how people perform at their very best, we're going to move from this sort of nascent evolutionary process to what we call the evolution of evolution. We're going to start to be able to manage our own evolution in ways that have up to this point been impossible. And that whole disruption is going to uh, affect, I think, everybody in in, in powerful ways. So just being part of that environment right now, we're, we're kind of on the ride, if you like. But what is the evolution of evolution? That we'll all have longer fingers because we all need to use keyboards in a different way? Longer legs. Longer legs. You're there. I think the traditional notion is, yes, organically we adapt according to what the pressures of the world and society put on us. As we get into the world of nano-implantable chips in the brain that can get rid of fear, as we get into this ubiquitous space of augmentation where the machine and the human start to meld, I think we're going to start to see some very different uh, expressions of humanity. And for the best and the worst, as typically humans do things, I think that's going to be the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Well, interestingly, there was a poll in the independent newspaper today that suggested this was, by the way, to support Westworld, the series on yeah, HBO yeah. and Sky Atlantic. So it was suggesting that 58% of Britons are terrified of AI and robots. So... Yeah, I think... Um, I've seen over the fence a little bit in some of these new technologies, and I think there's probably a natural justification to be cautious and wary. But would you have a chip planted in your brain to prevent you feeling fear in certain situations? Depends what you wanted me to do, uh, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can it just be implanted on that one occasion then? Yeah, well, they can turn it on and off from what they tell me. Oh, wow, okay. So I think that, that notion of of the future of, uh, of AI and, the fu- and, and, and the ubiquitous AI, I must say. I think the opportunity, again, as humans, as the new tech, we can redefine our humanity. If the machine's taking a lot of the heavy lifting off us and doing the sort of more mundane work, exploring what it really me- it means to be human, exploring those sort of deeper values, character, wisdom, spirituality, I think it'll free us up to explore that path in ways we've never had. I'm but quite interested that you've used the word spirituality repeatedly in the list of things. What, what do you mean by that? 
Um, for us, it's it's another, you know, that sort of we call it the wisdom of the ancients. These these, you know, people and civilizations have been around for thousands of years, and if you you get rid of the rhetoric of religion out of it, it's about being better at who you are. It's about being better as part of a community. It's about mm. supporting success in whatever environment that is. So, in a sense, the original performance directors of the world were the, the spiritual leaders, and we still use a lot of their tools. For us. It's a natural pathway to go down. It's sort of like as we sort of, in many of our training evolutions, we literally are holding up a mirror to you and you're looking at yourself and exploring your own sense of who you are and that has in its own essence a spiritual nature to it. I've got one question for both of you before I open questions to all of you here. Um, what Do you think that anyone can be a disruptor in business, yes. Dom? Yeah, no, I, I do. I think it's... I think the thing that prevents people, the barriers to disruption, uh, that fear of failure is, is definitely one. The, the other one is is almost over-anticipating the thing that it is you're trying to do. Like if It's the best defense mechanism in the world to go, I've got this amazing idea, but I need $50 trillion to do it, and that's not fair because I've not got $50 trillion. And so what you've not done there is try and break it down into its composite parts. So I, I think what, what smart people do with disruption is they accept some vulnerability, they accept some humility and they surround themselves with smart people that can challenge them. And if you do that, then I think you can actually try and disrupt anything. Whether you'll be successful or not is a different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people get paralyzed by success and forget about progress. And a good disruptor is happier making progress than they are measuring the outcome they're delivering to. That's a good definition. Andy? I agree with Dom. I, you know, I truly believe people are capable of the most extraordinary things. And Sometimes that's best in the world, but definitely the better version of yourself or exploring your own potential. And I think disruption, as Dom so eloquently put, is more about a mindset and a shift in perspective versus necessarily an outcome that results in some form of success. So, I, you know, I think everybody's got it in them. But as we all know, things get in our way and, you know, life has a habit of getting busy. So our job's to help you get around that. Fantastic. Uh, anybody out there got questions for either of the guests? I'm a civil servant. I think I don't know if I'm the only civil servant here today. Um, how important do you think governments are in enacting disruption and innovation? Do we help or do we hinder? Uh, Very good question. <laughs> Very good question. John, um, you first. I, I, I think there is a duty of care to help uh, and not hinder. To, to hinder would be bad. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a difficult thing because... Uh, when you're a government, when you're a monolith, when you, when you have that duty of care to a society, it's easy to talk in theory about a lot of stuff. Um, innovation's important. We, we get the adverts, we get the posters, but how can you actually go and directly impact that? Uh, for, for me, in, in my environment in Australia right now, where we have a shortage of, of students coming through the system with uh, science and technology and engineering and maths, uh, the, the investment should be there, right? You, I don't think governments going out telling industries that they need to be innovative is, is cool. It's kind of pointless. They, they live in their own ecosystem. But where they can have a positive impact is making sure that we are educating the children of the future with the skills and, and, and competencies that they need in the world they're going to be living in. That's the biggest impact I think they can have. Mm. Andy? I, I agree. I think um, in general sense it's hard because there is that duty of care. But I do believe... And I've participated in some government-funded projects that are aimed directly at disrupting an industry. And I think when you focus in on a particular project or, or series of programs that you can fund outside of the normal day-to-day operations of, and duty of a government, I think you can have a significant impact. And then if you can parlay that into education, as Dom said, and, and bring that, conver- that conversation forward in the youth of tomorrow, I think that really is a role that governments can be very aggressive in. 
and and I've seen it work, and it's and it's powerful when they do because they do think, as a government, they have liberties that private industry doesn't have, and they can set the rules. Obviously, so if they create space for themselves in certain in certain communities, I think they can disrupt at levels that industry is not capable of doing. Thank you, thank you for that question. Mm. Come and sit here. You don't need the bean bag. We've just put this one on. That's easier. Just Hello. introduce yourself. <laughs> Hello. Hi, my name's Bethany. I work for Adobe, and mentors have always been a big part of my life. And I've had mentors that have been professional and private. How important is, you know, for you and your organisations to mentor young talent and and share with them and help them and, and grow them? I think it's fundamental to what we do. I think. There's only so much you can learn from the presentations and the books and online. I think having that one-on-one contact with someone who's been there and done that, uh, and one of the things we encourage is this, at some point the extraordinary best-in-the-world kind of person becomes second best in the world, third, but, you know, they, they come off the top. And one of the ways we help transition that sort of uh, movement for them is to encourage them to get engaged in giving back. And, you know, sharing what they've learned with that next group of community really does seem to add that dimension to their career in many ways that they didn't have previously because they were so busy sort of doing their craft, but also allows them to sort of shortcut for that next person. So it's fundamental to what we do. John? Um, I think mentoring is a complete waste of time if you don't open up your mind to it. And, and I think it, I it really... Where you were going there. Yeah, yeah. It's like, whoa, controversial. <laughs> Um, it, it really annoys me because I, I see too many people going into mentoring relationships for one of two reasons. One, they find a happy clapper, right, who just, you know, oh, no, you're amazing. No, you're awesome. No, you're, you're like, you are really cool. Complete waste of time. Like, go and massage your ego by yourself. Um, the, the other one is they find a mentor because it's for career progression, and therefore they pick their boss, right, to placate them. It's like, oh, you're, the, you're just so inspirational. I wanted to learn from you, and can I get a promotion soon, please? So for, for me, mentorship needs to be you actually finding, seeking someone out who can give you a challenge, and then you need to work out when they've given you that challenge and when you move on. Like, it's quite a transient relationship, in, in my experience. And so the question I ask whenever anyone approaches me about mentoring, I ask them immediately, what's the, th- what's the one thing you want from this? And if they can't answer, the door's closed because I haven't got the time to play the game. I only want to do it with people that genuinely know what they're going after. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good question. Have either of you... Yay! <laughs> have either of you had excellent mentors? I, I've had amazing mentors. So I, I, I work on the rule of three. I've always got one that I'm trying to woo, that I'm trying to convince to be a mentor. Who's one, that at the moment? One that currently is a mentor and one that I'm trying to get rid of. Um, <laughs> the, the, the one I'm trying to woo right now is, a, is a, a friend of a friend in the US. Whenever I spend time with them, they just provoke me in a way that actually hurts my brain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like when you have a slush puppy and your brain freezes and you do that weird <laughs> face. And so that, that for me gives me a challenge that truly forces me to think differently. Uh, The one I'm working with closely is actually helping me in my career right now. And the one I'm trying to get rid of has now become a great friend. So we just go drinking and we hang out. (laughs) But but I haven't got a specific thing I want to learn from them anymore. Okay. Have you had any notable mentors in your life? Yeah, obviously. You don't get to any level of success, I don't think, without having someone sort of being your guardian angel. Um, And over the years, these mentors have really helped craft my direction and my future and what I've been able to achieve. Uh, but right now, I'm actively looking. So if anyone's up for the mm. job, please uh, put your hand so, up. What, what is it you're looking for? Your mentor? What, my mentor. You're asking what he's looking for. Yeah. What is it you're looking for, Andy? I'm looking for exactly what you said, Dom. <laughs> 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 no, I'm looking for that person that can challenge the way I'm thinking, what, the way I sort of see the world. And um, 
someone who's had some experience sort of uh, in, a, in a field of not, not similar to mine, something different. Mm-hmm. Someone who can look at it very objectively and say, really, you need to mm-hmm. you know, just develop this way. You know? right. And I think, um, yeah, it's hard. I find it very tough to find a good mentor because the ones who I really admire and that are usually very, very busy individuals. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and, and I think it takes a bit of time. I think mm-hmm. you've got to pick a mentor who's really willing to spend some time with mm-hmm. you. And that's so you can develop that relationship and eventually be at the pub having beers with them. Yeah. yeah, that's important. Any any other questions? Anybody want to come and take the seat? Oh. Oh, yes. Uh-oh, who's this? My name is Gary Noble. Um, my question is, first of all, statement what I do, uh, develop products, and we're all very fortunate in this room that we're reasonably bright people and we've had a lot of opportunities. And so many of us are going to use that to put people out of work in a lot of cases the technology is going to result in those who get left behind and the country's based on that principle um how how do we take those people who are never going to be sat in this room along with us because i'm going to do it myself i'm going to create a lot of people who won't have a job i'll create employment but there are going to be the left behind what what do we how can we face that together wow that's a very deep question Mm. do you want to go first andy Sure. I, I mean, I think um, the approach that I sort of mentioned earlier is as, as this, we evolve, as this industry economics, uh, the whole system sort of starts to shift to this sort of workforce replacement problem, I think, uh, again, what are we doing for those individuals before we get to that point? Are we setting up systems and structures in anticipation of a lot of people work, looking out of work? And I think some of the examples of shifting to a th- three, four-day work week, distributing the workforce, things like that. Because I think once it happens, it's almost too late. And I don't have a solution for you directly because I've been thinking about it a lot myself. And hence, I draw back on hopefully some other industries are developing that will sort of supplement what sort of we're taking away. But in the end, the problem set is clear now, I think. How do we, what are the solutions and problems, that, solutions we can make to move us ahead in that way? Tom, do you have anything to say? Yeah, I, I think uh, I reflect on a Future of Work conference in Australia uh, earlier in the year, and there was a whole lot of talk around, um, you know, you remember in the 60s and 70s, I don't, I wasn't born, but uh, do you remember the 60s and 70s, the, the, the sci-fi, right? And, and we're all going to be travel around in spaceships, yeah. and you know, you'll do a two-hour working week, and you won't eat food anymore, all your flavours will come in a, in a pill, right? Yeah. So some of it, I think we have to tolerate the fact that, you know, the world will change, but we own that change. And, and sometimes we just like to blame other people, but, but we'll own that. And then where the specific skills, I think, yeah, there's a lot of data that can start to pinpoint where those skills are today, which won't be required in the future. And those people can get and should get reskilled. Like we, we, as a society, we need to drive the fact that they are still valuable people in our society and find room for them. So I, I don't see the mass kind of abandonment of, of, of roles. I see a transition to, of roles to knowledge workers. Um, but at the same time, I think we're, we're always going to need a mix of people to do a mixture of different things. And if we can find those skills where they might be automated, let's just reskill those people and like, invest in them. What have you, you. But what have you thought about in terms of, of what you could do? Like Andy, I stay awake at night thinking about it as well as doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, the truth is I don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very, very difficult. And I've tried to be philanthropic. I don't have much money, but try to get a guy 16 year old he's now 20 he's never worked giving him an opportunity at work and he didn't come to the interview and I've worked with people to try and get him there and I've done everything I could conceivably have thought about 
and I couldn't make him do it. I'll try again, but yeah. it's Let's difficult. Try again. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that's you. the thing. Yeah, try. I'm really nice. Good question. Yeah, lovely question. That questions all our levels of consciousness, something yeah. like that, doesn't it? Well, excellent. Thank you all so very much for being Thank here. Thank you. Thank you to both my guests. Have a great day. Thank you so much Thank for you. being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a joy. Yeah, it was so easy. Thank you. It was so Boy, you made you it. Made it easy. Easy. No, yeah. You made it easy. No, you made it. The Voom Podcast was brought to you by Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast business broadband company and produced by Pixiu. We'll be back in the studio to start Series 2 in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, you can head to virgin.com for more podcasts, articles and entrepreneurial tidbits. Just before we go, I should also mention again that you'll be able to hear more from the Virgin Disruptors event in a new series of inspirational talks launching soon as the Virgin Disruptors podcast on iTunes. For now, from me, Nikki Beatty, and the Voom podcast team, goodbye. Psst, I almost forgot. Here's a little sneak preview of the show with Jacqueline Gold from Anne Summers that I promised you at the start of this episode. A super lovely woman and incredible business mind. See you in two weeks' time for Series 2. Can you imagine any of the women that you mentor now, any of the younger business people, people going in for the first time, having to get a bullet in the post? Can you imagine any any other business that might elicit that response? you want to tell us about the bullet, by the yeah, way? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? You couldn't make this one up. I, I basically um, wanted to open a store in Dublin. Our sales in party plan were much higher, actually, than in the UK, in Ireland. Mm. So it made sense that a store would go down very well. So we, uh, we found a location on um, O'Connell Street and... When the Dublin Corporation, they were called then, but the equivalent of our council, got wind of what we were doing, they immediately were writing me letters on the phone. Don't open this store. We'll move you to some lovely backstreet location. <laughs> well, actually, this isn't what I want to achieve. But um, in the end, I said, look, come over and meet us. Come and see our stores. You know, see what we're about. So they came over and um, I gave them a tour of our stores. And in the afternoon, we met in the boardroom. But, you know, it wasn't long before I realised they had an agenda. They were told that in no uncertain terms they were to come back and having convinced me to choose a different location to O'Connell Street, which is where they were um, planning to, um, you know, completely overhaul, which was part of our reason for wanting to go there. Um, And it was Alan and Kieran. And Kieran's parting words when he left my boardroom to go back to Dublin was, look, if you go ahead and open that store, I cannot be held responsible for what might happen to you. Now, that's absolutely true verbatim what he said. Now, I'm not claiming that he was responsible in any way, shape or form. But a week before we were due to open, I received a bullet through the post. And I'm sure... You will forgive me for thinking, my God, am I doing the right thing here? Do I go ahead with this? But, you know, I knew it was the right thing. Absolutely, I was going to go ahead and open that store. Did the bullet come with a specific message? Yes, it did.